Welcome to Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. Before we start the show, I'd like to share a brief word from our sponsor, Physician Outlook Magazine. Physician Outlook is a new magazine platform built for physicians by physicians and specially designed to showcase unique physician talent. It's about that intersection between clinical and non-clinical interests. Whether it's writing or painting or cooking or making a political statement for local government or even at the nation's capital, it's available online and in print, it's visually stunning on all of its platforms, and it's truly unique among physician lifestyle magazines. We think you'll find it a refreshing change from the more traditional publications. It even engages patients who still believe in physician-led, team-based care. To subscribe, just visit their website at physicianoutlook.com. And now we'll start our show. I'm your host and the co-author of the book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Rebecca Bernard. As non-physician practitioners increasingly provide more patient care, experts note a commensurate increase in medical malpractice claims. Today, I'm delighted to welcome medical legal advisor, Bob Pegritz. Bob is the author of Hospital Confidential, an expose of medical malpractice cases. And as a former surgical physician assistant, he is uniquely positioned to discuss the medical legal implications of non-physician practice. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Well, I really enjoyed your book, Hospital Confidential, and I'm really excited to talk with you about that and also about your experience in the medical legal field and your thoughts on non-physician practitioner malpractice. But why don't we start out by having you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Thank you very much. Uh, I was uh, born in Smock, Pennsylvania. It's about a bustling 300-person community about 50 miles south of Pittsburgh, the entire town was populated with either coal miners or steel workers. After I uh, finished school, I, I joined the Air Force and I became an air medical evacuation medic. But before that, I was given basic and very advanced medical training. I then was, uh, for my efforts, I was uh, sent on a 13-month vacation to Vietnam and I worked in helicopters. I, I was the guy in the bottom of the helicopter that took care of the patients and got them back to safety. After that, I got out of the military. I started working as a surgical assistant in the, the University of Pittsburgh, which at the time was called Presbyterian Hospital. Now it's called UPMC. I worked at Children's with the, a doctor named Henry Bonson. We did pediatric open heart. After that, I went to a smaller 150-bed hospital in southwest Pennsylvania, and I assisted. My, my surgeons were a thoracic surgeon, a general surgeon, orthopedist, a urologist, and an OBGYN. So I covered the entire waterfront, so to speak. After that, I decided to head out to Wilmington, Delaware, seeking fame and fortune. And so uh, I was hired by Dr. Oz, who is not the guy on television, but his father. And I enjoyed uh, working there at the Wilmington Medical Center, which is now called Christiana Care Health Services. I worked there for 13 years. So, Bob, I I just want to stop you for one second, because in my research about the physician assistant profession, it sounds like you were actually the exact type of person that the profession was created for. I think the whole idea was to take medics that were coming back from Vietnam and other places that had some basic training in medical and had a lot of experience in the field and then help them to kind of find this niche. Am I right about that? 
You're exactly right. And uh, as a matter of fact, I was grandfathered into the program. I, I had taken the uh, uh, certification course and was grandfathered in. And I'm proud to say that 11% of all the physician's assistants that are out there now are military veterans. It makes me very proud to know that. Absolutely. So you worked as a PA for a number of years, and then you had a little transition in your career, and you started getting really interested in the medical legal aspects of medicine. How did that come about? Well, after a midlife crisis and a trip to audio engineering school, and then another trip as an intern to Nashville at the Grand Ole Opry, I came back to Wilmington, Delaware, and was teaching a Morse code class when I said to a friend of mine at the break, if I don't hear from Nashville pretty soon, because they promised to hire me as soon as the slot was open. And I said, if I didn't hear from Nashville soon, I would have to go back into surgery. That caught the ear of a plaintiff malpractice attorney who was one of my pupils. And he approached me and said, do you understand what all that means in medical records? And I said, of course I do. And he said, uh, well, he said, I would really like to employ somebody like that every now and then. And my only question to him was, do you have friends who feel the same way? Next thing you know, I was a medical legal consultant and have been that way for 32 years. It sounds kind of like right place, right time, and things were just lined up to to work out well for you. Some people would say I lead a charmed life. (laughs) Well, it sounds like you've worked very hard as well. And that leads me into a discussion about your book, uh, which is called Hospital Confidential. And it's fascinating. I downloaded it to my Kindle and I could not stop reading it. Um, This is a book full of just fascinating malpractice cases or also some medical mysteries. How did you get interested in writing and how did you pick these cases? Well, the interesting thing over the years, Rebecca, is that these cases came to me and the book uh, has uh, 13 of these stories. Every one of them has not been embellished in any way, although they might read as somewhat preposterous, but they actually, I can tell you, everything happened the way that it's written. But I would sometimes at parties or social gatherings, I'd say, well, I remember this case and I would tell them a story about a case. And they used to, I always got the, the answer. Bob, you should write a book. And that's exactly what I decided to do. It sounds like you were the life of the party. And you're also an excellent (laughs) writer, I just want to tell you. And one of the really interesting things about this book is that you tell the story and you give the vignette. And then at the end of each case, you have commentary by Dr. Cyril Wecht. Tell us who that is. Dr. Cyril Wecht is a... Sorry, Dr. Cyril Wecht. It's okay. It's okay. He gets it both ways. Anyway, he's a forensic pathologist, used to be the county coroner for Allegheny County, which included the city of Pittsburgh. And he had been that for many, many years, studied a great deal of forensic medicine, was instrumental in reviewing the Warren Commission on the Kennedy assassination, had done very high-level autopsies on on famous people, but he has been known internationally and now works as a medical legal consultant in Pittsburgh in forensic pathology. How did you come to associate with him and and to collaborate on this book? Well, Rebecca, he was the man is a household name in Pittsburgh. And I just decided one day I had some free time. So I called him up and said, hey, you want to go to lunch? And he said, yes. And we met and we have been very good friends ever since. You know, Bob, I love that story because I have been thinking and listening to a lot of different people talk about how important it is just to take a chance. And if you want to do something, you want to meet somebody, just 
ask. <laughs> and you just gave a perfect example of that. Well, one of my pen pals just passed away, uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu. Oh. And I and I we we used to write to each other, and uh, I, I'm I'm glad you know you try to associate with people who are very, very learned and very successful and hope that some of that rubs off. I so love that. I have, I have other people I communicate with Nicole Malachowski, who was the first Thunderbird pilot, first woman Thunderbird pilot. Wow. And the, uh, the other person I communicate with is uh, Cardinal Timothy Dolan in uh, New York city. So this is off topic, but now I'm so intrigued. What would be your advice to a listener out there that just, you know, really admires somebody or really would love to talk to them? What, what should they do? Well, if they're watching this podcast, they have the tools to communicate with that person. And all you really have to do is, is, is write a, 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 a letter. I am sure that if you feel like you want to talk to somebody, you already feel respectful towards that individual. And so, just write them and you would be amazed. But but I I really feel that in order to get into a, a position that high up, so to speak, you, you can't be a jerk. You have to be a nice person in order to get that high up. I've, I've met, I have seven department heads of the departments of uh, different uh, surgical specialties at Johns Hopkins that call me Bob. And, and they're, they're very good friends of mine. But but they, you don't get to be a department head at one of the best hospitals in the United States by being, you know, uh, off-putting or, you know, have a, a dour personality. They're very welcoming and very nice. And, and if you respect that and, and, and come to them on, a, on a, a nice level playing field, my grandfather taught me, don't look up, don't look down, look straight across. And, and if you do that, you'd be amazed at how wonderful they would be toward you and how they would respond. I'm really inspired by that. So thank you so much for sharing. Let's My pleasure. Talk, let's talk a little bit about some of these really fascinated case, fascinating cases in your book. And what I really liked is if you go to your Amazon page where the book is for sale, you see kind of a little blurb. And one of the things that it says is that doctors and medical professionals can learn a few tips from this book. And one of the first one is you probably shouldn't pick up the scalpel after four double vodka martinis. So that right. is excellent advice. And <laughs> one of the stories that you tell that leads in is of, of a surgeon who botches a, a uterine bleeding repair after a woman uh, has a cesarean section, leaving the young woman infertile. And it, as I was reading the story, I was thinking, gosh, this sounds a lot like that movie Malice starring Al, a young Alec Baldwin in which he's the surgeon and he has that famous speech about I am God and you know this kind of like God complex. There were so many things that went wrong in this case. And one of the things that struck me was that a lot of the nurses and other staff at the hospital, they noticed that something was wrong, that the doctor didn't seem right or that he had some problems, but they were all afraid or intimidated or unwilling to speak up. What can we learn from that? Well, you hit the right word, Rebecca, intimidated. You cannot be timid in speaking to these people, even if you know you're going to get chewed out or if you're going to get ostracized in some way, simply because if a patient's health is at risk or if there is a particular sign or symptom that needs to be reported to the doctor, just because he's sleeping off a hangover in the, in the break room doesn't mean that he's not to be disturbed. And you have to sort of develop that fortitude to, to impart that information on these physicians 
regardless of their personality. I, I will tell you, I, I have known absolutely uh, doctors who have taken patients and said, your health is my primary concern, and, and they're horrible. And I've seen others who, uh, there, there was one particular orthopedic surgeon that I used to work with. He was one of the crankiest, one of the nastiest surgeons, but he was the best orthopedic surgeon I ever met. He had golden hands. That is such an important distinction because a lot of times I know when I'm talking about the importance of physician-led care, a lot of times what I hear is, well, patients prefer nurse practitioners or sometimes even physician assistants because they listen and because they're nice. And what you're pointing out here is, while it's really good and helpful to be nice and to listen, there also has to be a certain level of skill and knowledge that's first and foremost. There really does. And so you shouldn't feel embarrassed when you're in a, a, an office of a medical provider, whether it be a mid-level provider or a physician, to sometimes ask about their credentials or ask about their cases. Because, you know, it's just like purchasing other things in life where, you know, you want to know a, a, a smart consumer is a good consumer. And especially when it comes to a person's health, the more you know, I mean, everyone who's watching this has the internet. You can always go online and search around and see if uh, you know a doctor has been sued. You can, there there are, are, are places where you can actually see that information, and you know you can find out more. So, so I think a, a, an intelligent and a well-educated consumer is a, a good consumer and a good patient. I think you're so right. You think about how Americans research every little thing, you know, the, the toaster you're going to buy. And yet a lot of times we don't do that much research when it comes to our health care, or we may feel that we don't have a choice, but we do if we can just become more educated and also more insistent that we find out who's taking care of us. What are their credentials? Like you said, we should never be afraid to ask for a second opinion. And also, you know, I always say as a primary care physician, patients should reach out to their primary care doctor, especially if they're looking for referrals to specialists or, you know, just to find out if they're going in the right direction. But, you know, what you're saying about being a little more insistent and being a more educated consumer really was something that I saw in your book, which is a lot of times when physicians and nurses and other clinicians got into trouble was when they ignored or didn't thoroughly work up a patient's complaints. And you had several stories uh, in which patients, you know, there was a patient that had severe constipation and it kept getting worse and worse. And nobody really did much of an intervention until finally he had a perforation of his bowel. And these cases over and over again, what you describe are patients and even patient family members saying, you know, please help me. Why do you think it's become so much more common, and maybe it always was in, in healthcare, for clinicians not to really listen to patients or not to intervene when they seem to have such severe symptoms? Well, Rebecca, you and almost every other physician in the world knows the quote from Sir William Mosler, one of the founders of Johns Hopkins, listen to the patient and they'll tell you how to treat them. And, and unfortunately, especially nowadays, Sometimes people do listen, which is a wonderful thing, but sometimes uh, people make up their mind a little sooner as clinicians, diagnosticians will make up their minds and they'll go down a diagnostic path that may be contrary to what the patient's saying. That's a really good point. And in fact, they'll try to force 
the diagnosis down the pathway that they're thinking of rather than, you know, they just, they call that like foreshortening of the diagnosis where you just, you've made your decision and no matter what somebody says to you, you're just locked in on that. And that's just so dangerous. I guess the other thing I wonder about is healthcare has gotten so crazy with the documentation and the demands that, you know, I'm sure everyone's just feeling very burned out and fatigued and it makes it harder for them to listen to patients, especially I'm thinking about hospital settings. I, I agree with you 100%. But ultimately, you as the clinician, whether you're a physician, nurse practitioner, physician assistant, nurse, you know, you're responsible for the care of those patients. And one of the things that I thought was interesting in the book were the, the technical challenges. And speaking of a time now where everything is electronic and we're depending more and more on machinery and instruments, you had a really interesting case of a patient who had a cardiac arrest out in the field. And when the EMS team arrived, their AED, their shocking machine, had no batteries in it. The patient was in his 40s. And other other than this heart condition that came on quite suddenly, he was in relatively good health. And the EMT showed up first. And they had a battery in their automated electronic defibrillator. But they didn't have enough power to produce a shock but they had enough to make a tracing. And the tracing came back ventricular fibrillation, which we all know is a shockable rhythm. And so because the battery didn't work, they got the second battery, the spare, and and it was dead. Then they called the paramedics and the paramedics came with their AED and both of the batteries in theirs were dead. And then they called a piece of apparatus, a ladder truck that had an AED on board and it had no batteries at all. And the interesting thing is, is there was a sign at the fire station, which I actually photographed. And the sign was how to charge, change and maintain the batteries in the automated electronic defibrillators. You know, I I think about how in there's such a dependence on team based care and medicine. And I always think, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. So you have everything, everything, everything. And the patient dies because of a lack of a charged battery. And I think that's just an example of something that can happen in healthcare just all the time. You have to be constantly diligent about your instruments, about your equipment, about your staff, and it really, you know, lives are at stake. And, and you had another example kind of in the similar vein in which a patient had had thyroid surgery and was being monitored and they had a pulse oximeter measuring their oxygen on their finger. And yet the patient began to decline. No one realized that the patient was declining. It turned out that the pulse ox wasn't even plugged in and the patient was desaturating and rapidly becoming unstable. Even if the pulse ox was plugged in, sometimes the monitors aren't turned on. The, the high monitor or low pulse or oxygen uh, percent oxygen uh, saturation monitor are, are, are so far, you know, maybe the pulse might be, uh, alarm might ring at 180 beats per minute. Well, that, that's excessive. Or if they, if they make it so that the pulse ox doesn't uh, go off, the monitor doesn't go off until the pulse ox is down to 20%, you know, that, by then it's that's too inexcusable. Late. Yeah, by it's, then it's too it's late. It's way too late. Yeah, I think, you know, I think about alarm fatigue and I think about all the beeping and all the chaos. I even think about it with electronic health record and it you I guess you just sort of get get used to ignoring these things or just shutting them off. And now when something really serious is happening, you totally miss it. And that's 
obviously a matter of life and death, like it was in this patient. So I think your stories really remind us that when you are the clinician, ultimately you're responsible for everything, making sure that everything is working. And that's a lot of responsibility. It's something we should keep in mind as physicians, especially if we're supervising non-physician practitioners. Now you uh, have noticed a, a little bit of an increase in malpractice cases involving non-physicians, right? Yes, I have. Tell us a little bit more about some of the cases that you're seeing. Well, I have a case that has not gone to trial yet, and I can't, uh, well, I, I never give proper names or places, and so I can talk a little bit about it, but it's it's a case of a, uh, a nurse who worked in pediatrics, a nurse practitioner, who then decided to go to work as uh, a nurse practitioner in a neurologist's office. She had no training for, with neurology. So instead of examining the patient or doing a neurological exam as a nurse practitioner, she cut and pasted the medical record for seven months. And the patient came into the office about once a month. So there were seven cut and pastes that were done in the medical record and we learned nothing, but during this entire time, this man was going blind and he ultimately lost his sight. So sad. And I'm sure that I'm imagining the patient just trusted this nurse practitioner, assumed that they knew what they were doing or they were consulting with the physician. And I mean, obviously they were a very compliant patient because they're going back month after month. And that, that's such a sad story. We talked to another attorney who told something similar where it was a nurse practitioner who suddenly became a intensivist or a hospitalist or a neurosurgical NP. And the question is, how do you get those credentials? Because it seems like it's almost as easy as just flipping a switch or just uh, calling yourself such a designation. Well, if a, if a physician who is an internist or family practitioner or any, any specialty or subspecialty decides to go into another specialty, they are required to take some sort of training like another residency. And so why wouldn't that be the same for mid-levels? If they decide that they want to work in cardiology one day and rheumatology the next day, that's a pretty steep learning curve. Yes, that's a very steep learning curve. And like you said, it is quite a double standard because I'm a family doctor. And while certainly I can include neurological disorders in my care of patients, I could not hang a shingle and call myself a neurologist. That would be completely unacceptable. I'd be sanctioned by the board. So it is kind of an interesting double standard. I want to go back to what you talked about. So many instances of bad outcomes, and in this case, medical malpractice, is a failure to act and a failure to act on abnormal findings or to practice outside of protocols. So for example, you gave a case of a physician assistant that evaluated a child with abdominal pain. The child presented with a rapid heart rate with tachycardia, with fever, with abdominal pain, and the physician assistant said, it seems like it's acute gastroenteritis and a cold, sent the child home with a sulfa antibiotic, of all things. And of course, lo and behold, the child actually had appendicitis. And it reminds me of a case of Betty Wattenberger, who was a young girl who died when a nurse practitioner did not diagnose her with sepsis. And in the sense that both of these patients had clearly abnormal vital signs, and yet they were not triaged to the next level of care. 
And, you know, the same thing happens with another case that you explained about where a patient had mitral valve repair surgery done in sort of a, an innovative way and uh, started showing signs of decompensating. And just over and over again, nurses were charting these, this decrease in blood pressure, increase in pulse, and yet no action was taken. What are your thoughts when you see things like that? If it's cold in your house and the door's open, you close the door. You know, you don't sit there and write about the door being open, or you don't sit there and write about how cold it is in the house or how you're shivering. You get up and close the door. And, and, and so it, you're, you're very, very right, Rebecca. It, there's a, a lack of inaction sometimes. And, and some of that is the, the, the healthcare provider, whether it be a, a registered nurse or a physician's assistant or any, any other provider at all uh, during, throughout the whole chain is sometimes reluctant to take action. They feel that what they've done was chart and, and that's, they, they, they've exhausted all of their responsibility in making, in making the observation, reporting the observation on the chart. And oh, when the doctor comes by, he'll see it. Training has to be in such a manner that if you see something that is so far out of whack, something that's so far away from normal, that there has to be some reporting done or something has to be in place. And, and hospitals many times have these in place when you read their bylaws and when you read their nursing practices and whatnot, you see that they're put into place. Sometimes people just don't do it. And that's when they cross my desk. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And that's why there are there, in my opinion, having protocols, having policies, having procedures, it's not just for these clinicians here and there. It's for all of us. I have my own office policies and procedures and their guidelines so that you remember what you need to do so that you take action. Just identifying a problem isn't enough. You actually need to take the next step to try to remedy it. And I think that's where sometimes we we're just seeing a disconnect. And the other thing that I see, and you describe this in, in your book, were cases in which surgeons or others perform procedures, but then didn't really know what to do when they had a negative outcome or uh, an unexpected effect from it. And that made me think a lot about some of the, some of the increase in cosmetic procedures that I'm seeing around. And I'm only imagining that there's going to be more litigation in this field. Uh, one of my friends was just telling me how one of her patients saw a one of these um, medi spa nurse practitioners and they put these thread lifts in their face, which are these barbed threads that get uh, put under the skin. And I guess it's used to uh, give you a facelift. Well, unfortunately yes. these threads, I guess they have a high chance of getting infected. It's a known complication. And indeed in this case, the threads got infected. They were already in their barbed so they can't come out. And the nurse practitioner didn't know what to do about that complication. And basically, from what I understand, just stopped responding to the patient because they didn't know what to do. And the patient ended up on IV antibiotics and some deformities and things like that. So it just takes me back to the, you can get licensed to do things and you can do things that are, you really probably shouldn't, but you need to know every possible complication and, and bad outcome and be available if something goes wrong. And it sounds like that's a, a common problem that you see a, across your desk. Well, it's interesting you should mention this barb suture. Barb sutures have been around now for about six or seven years. But this, what you've mentioned is a clear misuse of a barb suture. A barb suture is meant to be used laparoscopically 
so that because you can't, a surgeon can't stick his fingers down into the laparoscope and tie a knot. But if you have a suture that's got a barb on it, you can pull it till the barb comes out of the tissue and there it kind of stays. It's, it's sort of a self-tying or a self-sustaining knot. And that is the purpose of a barb suture. People in dermatology or plastic surgery now are using a barb suture in this manner. But I do believe that that is a misuse of the product. It was never intended to be used in that manner. Yeah, in my research, it has a very high complication rate. From what I understand, not too many plastic surgeons, facial plastic surgeons are doing this procedure, but it's one of those things that uh, I guess seems easy or simple to people who really don't have that understanding and training, and it's being offered left and right, and unfortunately, we're seeing some complications, which it really worries me a lot when I see people that really have just a minimal amount of training and expertise doing things, especially invasive things to patients that they really don't know how to handle or, or even what the consequences could be. Well, in this particular case, like you mentioned, this suture, to my best of my recollection and, and my reading, uh, because I, I, I read journals every month, I, 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 I subscribe to things like Medscape just to keep up on things. And, and these sutures are non-absorbable. And so it's an automatic foreign body reaction or not automatic, but it's possible. Whereas if the suture were absorbable and it would be a, a thin monofilament suture, perhaps there would be a, a less chance of, of infection or complication, but it's the choice of the product. And, and you know, they're, they're getting results of this, but there's there's been no testing. There, there doesn't appear to be any FDA approval of use in the face, but certainly like in the gut, or in musculature, musculature in, in the abdomen, uh, in, in, in fascia and things like this, a barb suture is extremely useful, but not in, in, in plastic surgery. But, but that's, that's what I know from what I've read. Uh, maybe there are suture materials out there now that are absorbable, but it sounds to me like these complications happen as a result of a foreign body reaction or something like that. That's what I understand. And, you know, I'm so glad that you brought up the word science because doesn't it seem like more and more there's this extrapolation of, well, this should work, so let's just try it. Or a lot of times when I see the literature saying that non-physicians can practice just as well and safely as physicians, and then when you really dig into the science, it's really not very well done. And Bob, actually, the way you and I got to know each other was that you actually, you mentioned Medscape, and you saw the article that I wrote about the physician assistant name change and my concerns about their move towards independent practice. And yes, I did. tell me, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't know if the name change is going to make much of a difference, you know, between assistant and associate. However, and, and I haven't called myself a physician's assistant ever since I left medicine. And, and I don't use any letters after my name because, I, you know, because I, I, I sometimes I see nurses with 18 or 20 letters after. I, I am not kidding. I have seen 18 and they need to have a two by four for a name tag in order to have all the letters get in there. But uh, I've always said that degrees are for thermometers and, and it's, it's what you do. It's what you've learned. And, and there is nothing like being taught by people that are a whole lot smarter than you, which is why internships and residencies are out there. 
nowadays the 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 trend for uh, independent practice i mean there are some states where pas and nurse practitioners can hang out a shingle and see patients independently but we saw how that happened in our case that you mentioned previously that little girl that had appendicitis the pa said you should go home and eat apples you know that's not going to cure an infected appendix all the apples in the orchard isn't going is to cure that. And this is, this is why, you know, the doctor has to have some kind of supervision, of oversight. But when that oversight is missing and when that person might feel empowered to make decisions that maybe they're not capable or qualified for, that's when you get into trouble. Yeah. And, you know, the response to my article, of course, you know, it garnered a response from the American Academy of Nurse Practitioners and Physician Assistants. They actually teamed up, which was shocking to me because those two groups uh, don't always see eye to eye on everything, but uh, they chose to get together to <laughs> to respond to my article. But on the comments, and there were over 1,400 on my article alone, wow. it, it, uh, it was really enlightening because I got a lot of criticisms, but I also received a lot of support from physician assistants, many of whom don't agree with their leadership. They talk about really wanting to work with physicians and, you know, seeing the value. And so that was really gratifying to see. And, and hopefully they'll speak out to their leadership. I would hope so. What, what's the old expression? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So. Yeah, I think that they, that makes, it makes it clear who the enemy is. So but they, uh, they teamed up, you know, they, they teamed sure up. They sure did. And, and I'm, I'm so sorry that had to happen. I really, I, I, uh, for all those mid-level providers, I apologize on behalf of all of them. Saying oh, well, I got a lot happen. of nice supportive messages and, uh, and, you know, I am, have gotten to the point in my life and in my career where I realized how important it is to speak the truth from my heart and what I believe, because I always say, I'm not only a doctor, but I'm a patient. I'm a patient now, and I'm going to be a patient in the future. And really, it's all about making sure that patients have the best quality of care that they can. I want to encourage all my listeners, you've got to check out this book. It's called Hospital Confidential. Really well written, a quick read, super enter entertaining, lots of lessons to learn. It's available on Amazon.com, and the author is Bob Pegritz, and we'll have links to that book. So thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to seeing you on the next podcast. Of course, I encourage you to get my book that I co-authored with Dr. Naran Alajba. It's called Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare also available at Amazon and at barnesandnoble.com. And if you're a physician and you'd like to learn more about helping promote physician-led care, I would love for you to join the group Physicians for Patient Protection. Our website, physiciansforpatientprotection.org.